The Montserrat Retreat Easter in the Meantime by Gil Bailey Produced by the Cornerstone Forum Part 4 The Parable of the Russian Bells uh, So, I want to talk about culture and uh, the two... Well, first of all, I want to go to morning prayer. Uh, a line in the Psalm 15 that we prayed this morning is uh, leapt out at me. Is the way this is how liturgy works on us in the and the prayer of the church. You you hear it over and over and over, and then things leap out at you. And this morning, uh, the psalmist of Psalm 15 uh, speaks of one who speaks the truth from the heart. And I thought it, it's not just enough to speak the truth. We have to speak the truth from the heart. And it's an interesting conundrum for us. What's the difference between speaking the truth from wherever, the head, the viscera, uh, the testosterone, I don't know what all. Uh, but speaking the truth from the heart is what we're called to do. It's a big challenge. So I want to talk about culture. I want to talk about two cultures, not separate exactly, but impinging on each other. The culture of the church, Christian culture, and the culture of the host cultures into which Christianity moves and uh, which uh, Christianity then tries to Christianize by being the leaven awakening Christian uh, moral impulses and Christian worldview, Catholicity into these cultures, which happen to be simply the host cultures for Christianity. There has never been a Christian culture. The church's own culture is shot through with all kinds of uh, human folly and, and, uh, and uh, sin. Uh, but and and certainly the worldly cultures have never been Christian in any serious sense. But they are influenced by Christianity. So we have to think about the if if the culture of Christianity, the culture of the church, is to play its role in the worldly culture. It has to protect its own uh, its own uh, its own uh, spirit so that it can communicate something. It can't allow itself to be watered down and diffused so that it doesn't have that leavening influence on the other cultures. So I'm going, to re- I'm going to tell you a story today. That's all I'm going to do is tell you a story this morning. And I'm going to read this story to you, much of it to you. And it's a grand parable, which I think we can draw on for the rest of our session together. Uh, so I'm going to tell you a story, and I'm going to quote to you. Uh, for years and years, I took part in a uh, 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 seminar, twice a month seminar at Stanford University with Rene Girard and a handful of people. And many years ago, one of the uh, young fellows who came to that seminar for a while was Rick Hernandez, and he's a wonderful young scholar. And he was reviewing one time, many years ago, 
a an article that he was writing, which has late, uh, has uh, subsequently appeared in the American Historical Review, and it's a story about events in the early years of the Bolshevik Re- Revolution in Russia. I'm going to read to you from that story because it's a grand parable for what's happening in our world today. And we can use this parable as we go through the next couple of days. So these are uh, random quotes from Rick's article. Quote, Unlike ecclesiastical architecture, iconography, and music, the auditory culture of the bell, the church bell, has disappeared almost entirely from modern hearing. He quotes a scholar who wrote about the role of bells in uh, 19th century France. And he makes the point that the observations were entirely applicable to early 20th century rural Russia. And uh, this man, whose name is Corbin, says, quote, the rural peal of the 19th century, which have be, excuse me, the rural peals of the 19th century, which have become for us the sound of another time, were listened to and evaluated according to a system of affects that is now lost to us. They bear witness to a different way of being inscribed in time and space and of experiencing time and space, now lost to us. Parishes, by the way, were once delineated by how far the sound of the bell would carry. You had to be within that sound, and whichever bell you could hear, that's the parish you were in. (laughs) You see what I mean? John Sr., a great teacher at the University of Kansas for many years, says, quote, the perimeters of parishes were once determined by the distance steeple bells could sound, end quote. Back to Rick Hernandez. He says, quote, given the bell's auditory monopoly, the marking of liturgical time imparted a rhythm to communal life regardless of the relative piety of individual members of the village. Everybody was in tune with that bell, which, by the way, comes to us from the great monastic tradition. The, uh, quoting again, the actual bell casting, a process nearly as solemn and prayerful as the consecration ceremony accompanying the installation of a new bell, was often, often symbolized the community's solidarity. I don't know how many of you have seen uh, Andrei Tarkovsky's film, Andrei Rublev. Andrei Rublev was the great Russian iconographer. And there's this marvelous film by Tarkovsky about Andrei Rublev. And the turning point in his life is when Rublev goes into this village, the bellcaster has died and his inexperienced son has to take over and they have to cast a new bell to put on uh, a bell tower at a new at a new cathedral, and he doesn't know if he can do it because he hasn't learned it as well as he should. So there's drama, and they dig the pit and they uh, they uh, fire the furnaces and they pour the 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 metal and so on and so forth. A lot of drama. Is it going to work? They hoist the bell up with a great effort, and then they ring the bell and it rings. 
And the bell, the bell maker falls to the ground in gratitude and relief and so on and so forth. And Andre Rublev, who has been in silence until then, turns to the bellcaster and says, Now I can speak. You and I will travel together. You will cast bells and I will make icons. That's a beautiful scene in that really marvelous film. So, again, uh, Rick Hernandez points out that the bells invoked the eschaton. The bells reminded us that it's not just, that our lives are not just horizontal, that there is an eschatological horizon to our lives. And John Sr. has a marvelous way of echoing that. He says, the bell is the strike of silence. In a noisy world, it takes a striking sound within whose widening circles noise is hollowed out. Isn't that a marvelous thing? It's a striking sound within whose widening circles noise is hollowed out. It's a beautiful thing. So it reminds us of the eschaton. But what happens when it's gone? Rick Hernandez says, The bells exercised religious authority by marking and expressing the community's joyful worship. It did this by calling the far-flung faithful together for prayer. Hence, for Bolshevik activist and believer alike, the bells symbolize the village's older religious identity over against Bolshevik attempts to reconfigure or destroy that identity. In light of this symbolic significance alone, it should not surprise us that bells became such contentious objects in the village during the collectivization of rural Russia. Bolshevik activists themselves felt deep resentment at the continued ringing of church bells in their midst. When the bells rang, activists often heard the peal as an affront and a taunt. The bells were intimately associated with sacred time and liturgical time. Bell ringing served as a linchpin in the observance of the very holidays that the regime labored so creatively to efface and supplant. The holidays that the labor, that the regime labored so assiduously to eradicate. Does that remind you of anything? Yes. Happy holiday. Yes. <laughs> you see what I mean? We have been told in, only in the last few days uh, that the Obamas are going to have a non-religious Christmas. Uh, Rick Hernandez goes on. Bolshevik rhetoric about religious holidays usually centered on their waste of valuable labor time. Witness, for example, the campaign to remove Sundays and feast days from the calendar by switching from a seven to a five-day week or the so-called uninterrupted work week. So you simply drop, there's only five days in a week, they're all work days. Now, 
they did this very clumsily. They wanted to rearrange the calendar. We have done it magnificently. We have made, we have just incorporated the seven day work week. Have we not? <laughs> and we've done it without firing a shot. We've simply done it by, with economic, uh, development, processes, and so on. So you see, this is a parable. I don't want to tell you how to interpret the parable at every turn, but you, you, you see what I mean? Uh, thus, going on with uh, Hernandez's piece, thus the Soviet Central Council in Moscow singled out bells for special attention in its anti-Easter slogans of 1929. The council evoked an image that surely struck fear in the heart of rural Bolshevik activists. Behind the, quote, Behind the exultant peals of the Easter bells hides the cunning face of the enemy, said the Bolsheviks in uh, Moscow to their counterparts in the rural Russia. Of course, we have the annual uh, Easter Christianity mocking Easter contest between Time Magazine and Newsweek uh, to see who can mock Christian faith <laughs> the more, the more uh, triumphantly. Quoting again, the Soviet ideology required Bolshevik activists to remove the bell from the auditory landscape of the village. This ideology informed activist efforts in two, two ways. First, like their French revolutionary forebearer, they attempted to, quote, alter the prevailing pattern of the culture of the senses. Now, that's important. You see, we are bodily people. Our faith is not a cerebral. comes to us through culture and through our senses. That's why we believe in smells and bells. You see what I mean? That's why it comes to us through our senses. They knew they had to alter that. Alter the prevailing pattern of the culture of the senses by desacralizing the bell's authoritative sounds and sacralizing a variety of substitutes. Second, Bolshevik activists coveted not only the mystique of the bell's authority, but also its constituent substance, its metal, for their dreams of an industrial society. So there's an economic thing here, too. In a little exploited ideological aspect of the struggle over the bell, the Bolsheviks tried to supplant these ancient instruments of authority with modern ones more in tune with their hopes and sensibilities. While the villagers cherished and responded to the sound of the bell's authority, the regime busied itself with the production of alternatives. The whistle, in particular, offered a way to mark the new industrial schema of time and celebration. For Bolshevik theorists, the factory whistle also constituted an attractive challenger to the traditional bell ringing since, like the latter, it was heard by everyone in the village and reminded listeners of their real home. We have not here an abiding home. The bell had that eschatological reminder. But the factory whistle? Quoting, Bolshevik efforts to produce a new music that, quote, embraced all the noises of the mechanical age, the rhythm of the machine, the din of the great city and the factory, the whirling 
of driving belts, the clattering of motors, and the shrill notes of motor, motor horns, end quote. This new industrial aesthetic produced such notable failures as noise orchestras played on common machinery and, quote, symphony of factory whistles, end quote. But we have heavy metal, you see. <laughs> you see what I mean? Everything changes and nothing changes. History repeats itself, but not quite exactly the same way. Even more important than this aesthetic of industrial noise was the new authoritative sound brought to the Russian ear by the electric loudspeaker and the radio. Loudspeakers which were first mass-produced and put to extensive use at the start of the collectivization process had the potential to rival the bell's own power to deafen. End quote. Uh, quoting again from, from Hernandez. Like the bell, the loudspeakers could call assemblies for emergencies or celebrations, but they also afforded a more precise regulation of communication since they barraged listeners with constant, detailed, and controlled propaganda. In this capacity, the radio had an even greater potential as an, as an auditory source of Bolshevik authority. This, especially, this was especially evident in the uniquely Soviet development of the cabled or wired radio with tuning fixed to one or two official broadcasts and without an on-and-off switch. Though the radio was only tuned to the official broadcast, it did not have an on-and-off switch. We, of course, have cable television. 200 options. It has an on-and-off switch, but we don't use it. <laughs> you see? Mission accomplished. Mission accomplished. Hernandez goes on. The Soviet regime placed radio among its most important technological weapons against religion and thus vigorously promote, promoted the new electronic wonder. All the previous mentioned tactics, the countless public arguments in speeches and newsprint, the legal suppression of ringing and the production of uh, competing sounds, achieved only a limited desacralization of the bells to achieve a decisive blow against the village's traditional auditory culture, Bolsheviks had to dislodge bells from their lofty places in church towers and somehow radically reconsecrate them to Bolshevik ends. And so it was economics, because the five-year plan provided them with the rationale for doing so. The White House Chief of Staff, Rahm Emanuel, famously said, a crisis is a terrible thing to waste. Now, this is not a new idea. Uh, the Soviets came up with it as well. The five-year plan made necessary because the Soviet economic system was unworkable um, gave them an opportunity uh, to commandeer the bell. Quote, the five-year plan then provided a clear and urgent rationale for removing the bell finally and completely from the village scene. 
Indeed, by November 1929, central authorities were calling for the systematic confiscation of church bells, quote, for the needs of industrialization. Steel. There are records, by the way, of how many hundreds of thousands of tons of steel the Soviets were able to get their hands on because of these bells. Quoting again, the ideologue's answer to the mystique of the bells was the cult of the machine and the regime's hope for investment in tractor production. We're going to turn these bells into tractors. Won't that be nice? Sounds good. Such faith in the transformative power of machines went hand in hand with the glorification of the material out of which the machines were built, the steel. It just so happened, of course, that the, the name, the word in Russian for steel is Stalin. So it, it played marvelously into another cult, you see, the cult of personality, of the man of steel. What, quoting, was an irresistible symbol for propagandists and industrial planners alike as they paid homage to both Steele and Stalin and redundantly named the metallurgical plants after Stalin. So a huge uh, sacralization of this material as well as the, the occult idol. Now, to go back for a second, the bell ringer, in addition to the, the bell maker, but the bell ringer was a very important person in the village. He had a kind of semi-ecclesiastical, uh, well, more than semi-ecclesiastical role in the, in the community. And uh, so let's call attention to that for a second. Quote, the bell ringer's position seemed imbued with the mysterious forces of the bell tower itself. In a word, he participated in the sacred. Besides the sacralization of his office, the bell ringer's style of ringing itself also carried authority in that it helped to define the community's local identity. This is a kind of ecclesiological uh, subsidiarity. Each, each parish, each local community, they were unified by the bells and what they meant and so on and so forth, but each had its own little special ring, the way that cable car drivers in San Francisco uh, distinguish themselves, you see. So that's a wonderful example of particularity and universality at the same time, the paradox. Bell ringing tended to be complex and idiosyncratic uh, in terms of the local community. As a result, the bells define the community's identity not only because their peals sacralize the community's territory, but also because the subtle auditory rhetoric varied from one locale to the next. So this is a beautiful aspect of this bell ringing. Um, now, the transmutation of the sacred into the personality cult of Stalin and the mythologization of steel was part of the revolutionary logic. Metal thus became an essential ingredient or sacred substance. So you see the transfer of the sacrality of the bell and the bell ringer to the metal and the cult idol. This is the, you, you, you have to transfer these things. Uh, metal thus became an essential ingredient or sacred substance from which the most solemn Bolshevik dreams of society were to be incarnated. 
Acquiring metal for these dreams had, for many Bolshevik activists, the elan of a holy quest. To get that, it's not the quest for the holy grail, it's the quest for the holy steel to carry out this uh, industrialization process. In our day, one would think of the quest for a long, long life, perhaps much longer than we ever thought. But what do we need for that? Well, we have to have embryos to experiment with for our medical research. You see, this, I'm not, again, I'm not trying to tell you how to interpret this, but giving you a few, I guess, giving you a few pointers along the way here. Uh, okay, so Hernandez says, most importantly, the villagers contributed some of the metal used for the casting. Oh, this is when they're casting. The, by, by melting together the villagers' individual metal donations, the bell became a tangible, mysterious representation of communal solidarity. The in, people would bring their own metal, hand it to the, to the bell maker, and he would melt it down, and their own contribution would be up there in the church tower ringing. It's a marvelous gathering of, of the offertory of the community. Well, of course, this is now inverted and exploited uh, by the Soviets uh, who, dedicate, who uh, uh, dedicate the bell metal to the industrialization, which completely uh, inverted the process. Okay, I'm getting to the end here. Again, reading from Hernandez. This communist alchemy of converting potent symbols of the old way of life into scrap metal for the new way of life was an irony lost on neither the state nor the peasant. With this in mind, it should come as no surprise that the countless bells still hanging in many rural parishes became hotly contested objects between the regime's activists and their opponents in the Russian countryside. Confiscation allowed the wasted metal trapped in the bells finally to be put to good and proper use. The transvaluation of the bells from dead weight into meaningful weight came through numerous reports of their tonnage in confiscation. I told you they have these great records. They really kept records of it. So this is, we have to attend to the most important thing, which is industrialization, progress, and so on and so forth. Material well-being of everyone. The things that contribute to the spiritual well-being have to be sacrificed to the things that contribute to the material well-being. So we cannot be concerned about these things that do not contribute to the material well-being. But how about the spiritual well-being, the cultural well-being, without which the material well-being will be, will be ominous eventually and will weigh us down. He says finally, the Bolshevik anti-religious efforts went hand in hand with Bolshevik collectivization and deculturalization. Quote, the struggle against religion is the struggle for socialism, end quote, ran the famous Bolshevik adage. 
To peasants and Bolshevik minds alike, the defense of the church and its bell was integral to the defense of the village's identity and tradition against the entire Bolshevik project. Now, as a quick footnote, uh, Robert Louis Wilkin had an, a piece recently, a short article in the, on the blog, a First Things blog, uh, in which he noted two uh, recent stories, and he reflected on them. And I'll share it with you very quickly, and then we'll be finished. One was, I'm quoting, the European Court of Human Rights ruled that crucifixes will be to, were to be removed from Italian classroom. There's more on that. A lot of things have happened since then. The other came from Switzerland, where voters and a majority of and a majority of cantons, their states, adopted a law imposing a ban on the construction of minarets, uh, Muslim minarets, in their country. The minaret is not like a bell tower; it's like a flag. Uh, so we could talk about that some more. And. Uh, I'm going to read two uh, quotations and then I'm finished. Two little short paragraphs from his and then I'm finished. Uh, Wilkins says, I mentioned to a friend that I thought the vote in Switzerland and defense of the crucifix in Italy were perhaps part of a peace. Signs that in spite of much evidence to the contrary, the peoples of Europe apparently still believed in the potency of the Christian symbols because there was a huge reaction in Italy to this, even among the, the secularists and the communists. They wanted the crucifixes back on the, which is interesting. Wilkins says that, and he says, My friend responded that these protests had little to do with religion, only about culture. But isn't that the point? Religion does not exist without culture, and culture is a carrier of religion. When Christianity first came to Northern Europe in the early Middle Ages, a conversion meant a change of public practice, and the creation of a new public space in architecture, law, calendar, language, communal rituals, and so on. For the Swiss, erection of minarets taller than the church steeples would alter the skyline of cities and towns, visibly severing links to the past. The construction of minarets was seen as an assault on memory, and memory is attached to things. Without memory, a people have no sense of who they are. In Italy, the assault on memory had to do with the central Christian symbol of the West. In a historic Christian culture, wrote one of the bloggers who commented on this, quote, the symbol of a naked, suffering, unjustly condemned man in whom all that is good and worthy of worship and respect is centered is deeply buried in their souls, the souls of the European, end quote. And Wilkins finally says, in Italy, even atheists and communists respect the crucifix, quote, because it means so much about the condition and value of man, end quote. But these are materials, uh, metaphorical materials for us. You know, Barbara Tuckman wrote a book some years ago called A Distant Mirror, and she used the 14th century as a way of thinking about the 20th. And these, and they're not that distant, so these are, uh, but these are little uh, windows into our own particular moment. Uh, but because they come from uh, another uh, European situation or from uh, the la la early last century, uh, they give us uh, the, the wherewithal, perhaps, to see what we're too close to see, too close to 
recognize without those things.